This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Identity in Me, or In Me for short. My guest for this episode is Dimitri Anselm, a fellow Clark University graduate and executive director of programming at Facing History and Ourselves, who will reflect on a few aspects of his identity, in addition to some important professional work he's doing around identity. All right, all right, all right. I'm joined today by uh, Mr. Dimitri Anselm, and I'm gonna annoy him and refer to him as Mr. Anselm to start. He already told me a few years ago to stop calling him Mr. Anselm, <laughs> but I'm gonna do it anyway, because that's that Haitian in me. I gotta keep it respectful. You know, he's my elder. I know he doesn't wanna hear that either. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna refer to him as Mr. Anselm. How are you doing this evening? I'm well. I'm well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Identity in Me. And um, so here's the background on Mr. Anselm and myself. Once upon a time, I was a student at Brookline High School, and uh, Mr. Anselm was a teacher there. Um, however, he was a younger teacher, uh, and he still looks like he did back then. Well, thank uh, you for saying that. Some, some pepper in the beard. I mean, yeah. the salt in the beard pretty much looks the same. Um, I never had a chance to take a class with Mr. Anselm. However, um, I learned through the grapevine that he attended the school that I aspired to go to, which was Clark University. My guidance counselor told me about it, told me it would be an excellent fit. And she said that Mr. Anselm went there. A few months later, I received notification that he was gonna be my alumni interviewer. We went out for Chinese food. He paid for it, and the Chinese food was dope. I think I presented myself well because he sent a glowing report to the admissions office. And here I am many years later as a Clark alumnus, and I have to say that that alumni report must have had something to do with it. And I did see your remarks years later when I was an admissions representative. Um, I got a five out of five um, based on your review. So thank you for that. Well, you're a Clarky. <laughs> yes, sir. And, and I, I love your sweater. You're rocking the Clark sweater. Yeah, exactly. I'm wearing my Clark sweater. Uh, every day is a Clark day for me. So, yeah. Uh, cool. So, you know, the interesting thing with Mr. Anselm is um, he and I share a lot in common. Um, and we keep crossing paths. In addition to uh, being at Brookline High once upon a time, uh, my favorite history teacher was his history teacher in high school at Cathedral. Mr. John Sills, who gets a shout out in this episode. I said that we went to Clark University, but at different times. And I keep running into this man in different places. Uh, and we had a Haitian moment, I will say, uh, yeah. where we ran into each other out and about in Brookline. We stopped our cars <laughs> and just started talking. Um, so anyway, I, I've already talked a lot here. Tell me, Mr. Anselm, uh, you know what, Dimitri, <laughs> All right. So when did you get into teaching and why did you decide to teach? Um, I decided to go into teaching in 1992, um, after the summer of 1992. Up until then, uh, when I was at Clark, I went to Clark because I wanted to go into law. And at Shocker, the time, I really... wanting to go into law, but continue. Yeah, but I wanted to do it... Um, not for what, you know, all the Haitian parents wanted. Um, I was a product of the, 
you know, 70s, 80s, and the early 90s. And <laughs> um, I really firmly believed there was going to be a socialist communist revolution. What? And I wanted to be ready. And I thought we would need lawyers to set up and do the transition. And so, Hold on. I never knew this. Be, you got to tell me about this. Yeah, yeah. This that was so my whole purpose, to, you, huh? to go into law and to have socialist law ready for the transition. Um, and of course, 1989 and um, the Berlin Wall went down and the whole wall shifted. Um, okay. But I was also beginning to myself start to, to question my own um, political beliefs. You know, I was being a bit more critical about my own beliefs and so on while I was a clerk. I had great professors who helped me do that. But um, in the summer of 1992, a friend of mine who is the son of a gentleman who ran a summer program that I used to be part of when I was in high school called Behek, yeah. um, called me and said, hey, um, I got a job at my dad's program and you should come in and work there. And I was like, oh, doing what? He's like, oh, well, we're going to teach writing. And I was like, wow, okay, I do creative writing on my own, but I just didn't see myself teaching it. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, it'll be fun. We both, we, we get to create the class and we should teach it. So I needed a job and I went to do it. And that summer, it, it, being in the classroom and, and teaching and working with young kids in Boston who had grown up in the same neighborhoods and I did and would look like me, I was quite taken. I was taken by the power of education. Um, I realized how much of a bubble I had been living myself. Um, and I realized, you know, both the holes, the skill sets, things that were missing in some of the students I was missing that I was interacting with. Um, so I really decided that, um, as soon as I went back on campus, I went back, changed my major, decided I was going to go into teaching. Cool. I didn't know that story. I'm glad I asked. And yeah. so you referenced, um, young people who look like you which offers an opportunity for me to ask you the question that I pose to all of my guests, which is how do you identify? <laughs> um, how do I identify will vary by the day, time, <laughs> all right. the moment you find me. Um, but generally I identify as a black male of Haitian heritage and Haitian nationality. Um, although I no longer hold the passport from Haiti. Um, that's usually the way I identify, yeah. Okay, um, how do you feel about no longer holding your Haitian um, passport? <laughs> I'm good with that. I'm actually, yeah, I don't, I don't think my Haitian passport brought me any kind of special status anywhere, necessarily. Okay, it, uh, it actually has made my traveling much easier all around. Um, you know, but I think ha being Haitian is not a bad uh, passport holding. I think for many of us who are Haitian, being Haitian, um, it's a culture, it's a way of life, it's a way of thinking, it's a worldview. Um, being Haitian goes in, in ways that are incredibly deep and it goes beyond a nationality. So I was born in Haiti, but the family was living in the Congo in, in, at the time it was Zaire. So after 40 days of being born, uh, my mom took me back to Kinshasa. So I grew up in the Zaire. Another thing I didn't know about you. Okay, and how old were you when you came here? So the family left Zaire in 1985. I was 13 that summer. 
people are going to do math to try to figure out how old you are. You're 13 and 19. Yeah, I'm 49. I'm heading to be, I'm actually going to be 15 next summer. So I, I thought about that before the call. Yeah. I was doing math yeah. too. Yeah. Okay. So you came here in 85, uh, lived in what communities in Boston? So when we first arrived, we were in Roxbury at my aunt's house. She had an apartment, a two bedroom apartment in Roxbury. And there were probably already 56 people living in it. <laughs> uh, so we joined them. And then very quickly, within about a month, we moved to Dorchester, um, the family house. So we had family who moved to the Boston area in the late 60s. Yeah. And their parents had bought a house in 1970. So most of our families would come through, came through that house. It's a three-family house in, um, in Dorchester. So within about very quickly, we moved to that house as well. Okay, another thing we have in common, because I lived in Dorchester for a time, and I was 10 when we moved, or 91. So I was 10 when we moved. Going back to the matter of um, how you identify, are there additional layers of your identity or additional aspects of your identity that dictate your day-to-day life that are unseen? That's interesting. I wouldn't use the word dictate. Um, You know, but yeah, I have a complex identity. Um, I also identify on top of identifying as Haitian and a, a male. I'm also identi- I also identify as a gay man. I also identify somebody who come out of a Catholic culture. There are moments when that shows up. If I were to use the word dictate, I think the identity that dictates is a rather recent identity for me. Um, it's the one of fatherhood. Mm, um, yeah. The fact that I'm a father, that probably dictates since I have fatherhood responsibilities every day of my life when I get up. Um, but these how, old are, are, how, how old are your kids? Uh, my oldest is now 17 and my youngest is 15. Haven't seen them in a minute. Wow, no. 17 and yeah. 15. That's right, and they are Brooklyn High, yeah. Wrapping up soon, one of them yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, so going back to the matter of identifying as gay, and by the way, is it okay if I use the term queer or do you prefer gay? Uh, no, queer is totally fine. Gay is fine. I, I was actually trying to think. I've used both terms in my journey. I think probably I'm in a space in my life right now where I probably have moved beyond both of those terms. But either one of them are totally fine and interchangeable. Oh, we got to come back to that, moving beyond those terms. Um, and I asked that question because older people who are gay or lesbian often chafe at that term, queer. And so I asked the question in that vein. No, I t- actually, I've, I've always liked queer. I mean, I, um, since when I was young and then teaching at um, Brookline High, there was a whole movement about this. I, I always, um, I feel comfortable with queer and probably would embrace queer more than gay then. Um, only because I think for all of us, sexuality is, a, is on a spectrum. Yeah. It's, a, it's a life experience, a life yeah. journey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, queer in a sense of... Um, not recognizing that your sexuality does not fit into the general heteronormative mold yep. that most of our society operates. That, yep. that makes sense to me. Yeah. So Now, how old were you when you came out? Oh, you know, I was going to say late, but I don't, it was in my early 20s, 21, 22. So I was right in college toward the end of my college career. Why didn't you come out earlier? I didn't think I needed to come out earlier, and I don't think I understood the, the emotions that I felt when I was 21, 22. Um, I think up until then, I was identifying as a straight heterosexual male. I dated women. I liked women, and, and 
you know, I found myself all of a sudden having uh, developing um, emotions and attractions to to men at that time. So it, it's inaccurate then for me to say you came out at 21 because it wasn't as though you were closeted before that and then, you know, right. revealed to the world at 21. Right. That you were yeah, no, I don't. That, I, yeah. And the term coming out is the term that I, if I were to bristle at anything, I've always bristled at that term. I think it's yeah. a very white, gay community term. I don't know how much that term applies for, for us women of color. Say, um, say more about that, please. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly, it's a cultural term. I think it's a cultural term that really applies um, to a particular experience that I think mostly white gay male have developed. This idea that you have an understanding of your sexuality and that you have to disclose it publicly and there's a ritual or some kind of process of telling your family and you tell your friends and then either there's acceptance or rejection and so on. There's a disclosure that happens. Many of us who are uh, men of color who sleep with men don't come out of cultures where there's either pressure or a need to come out, or even the the idea that one would disclose one's sexual practice is not necessarily part of those cultures. And that doesn't make those that does not make those culture homophobic at all. Um, it does not make those cultures homophobic or rejecting. It's just not the way they handle. Um, disclosure of one's sexual identities or one's sexual practices. Interesting, because I've always considered Haitian culture, I can only speak to Haitian culture because it's the one I grew up in. I always felt as though the Haitian community was very conservative about sexuality. Um, And in my friend and family circles, I didn't encounter many progressive people um, in terms of how they perceived or talked about sexuality when I was younger. It wasn't until I got older, actually, and got to Brookline High that I encountered more students who spoke about homosexuality in a manner that was not offensive. So it's interesting to hear your perspective that, you know, in the Haitian community or Black community, it almost sounded as though you're saying those communities are more open you know, I think it's complex, yeah. um, and I appreciate that you, you refer to a Haitian com- community as being conservative about sexuality. Yeah. Um, I think there is, the, there seems to be a cultural impression that Black communities, so a Haitian community being one of the Black communities of the country, are more homophobic. I reject that. That has not been my experience at all. And I'm approaching 50, and I have plenty plenty of black men who sleep with men of a variety of cultures. Um, We have not experienced the kind of familial rejection that some of our white counterparts have. Um, So I I reject the idea that our cultures are more homophobic than others. Um, And I actually think it's racist. Um, Mm. Now, I agree with you that some of our communities might be more conservative about sex, but what are they conservative about? They're conservative about how one talks about sex, which I think we can find that kind of conservative behavior in any culture and in any racial group. There's a, that generally many of us have, you know, grown up with a lot of sex is viewed as taboo, shame, um, something one does not discuss. 
And I think that ties in a lot with the kind of religion backgrounds and so on, and a variety of other traumas that uh, many of us come out, whether we're white, Black, Asian, Latinos, or whatever. So then um, we also come from cultures, as we say, we may have a may lean more conservative in discussions about sex because of the religious angle and so on. And we may also have more cultures that may be more conservative because of the, the need for projecting these kind of very strong masculine archetype that Western European societies tend to like. But I think that's a result of colonialism. So we, we've taken on these very European definition of masculinity that we are we're projecting. But I actually, and in the case of Haitian in particular, I don't think Haitians are conservative or homophobic at all. If you speak to most Haitians, they will recognize that they are gay men and gay women. They understand that there is a variety of sexuality. Um, and oftentimes those people are totally in the mix and fully accepted uh, in those relationships. Now, in the same time, will Haitians make jokes about it? Yeah, but the Haitians make jokes and have opinions about everything. So one, I think, has to understand Haitians' positions and language about homosexuality within the context of Haitian culture. And the way Haitians will react to gay men and gay women or to the idea of gay men and women, they do it in a very culturally Haitian way. But you do not have instances of Haitians beating up on gay people. You do not have um, instances of Haitians um, rejecting family. The traditional Haitian mother will tell you that she's not going to cut her fifth finger. Yeah, and 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 it's uh, it will never even consider um, the cutting of a finger, right? Because it's my child, this is, and I that's really, that's just our culture. We don't do that. Um, Haiti, the Haitian parliament has considered legalizing gay marriages for years, and that's been an open debate in Haiti. Um, so it's a much more open culture that people may want to think, despite the conservative attitudes and so on. Um, I mean, if you if you follow voodoo. Um, there is a whole goddesses. Um, Erzuli is known to be the goddess of gay men. That men who um, are considered uh, men who sleep with men or men who do not who do not feel fit into that heteronormative archetype yeah. are said to follow Erzuli. So the, the Haitian culture has always had space for the men who were not fitting into the heteronormative archetype. This is interesting because I had, that wasn't my experience growing up. Uh, I won't dispute uh, your perspective because it is your perspective to have. Yeah. Um, and so as we're talking- but The only thing I would like, say, to not to interrupt you, but the yeah. only thing I would say is remember that you were growing up and experiencing a Haitian culture within the context <clears throat> of the United States. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you were Haitian, but within the context of the United States. So it meant that a lot of the things of the larger American society was seeping in Understood. into our Haitian culture. And so, you know, as you were talking earlier, and um, I was thinking about the differences between the way um, you experienced your journey as a gay man, based on what you were saying, and how my conversations have gone with other folks about their journey and the matter of chosen families. You never had to um, acquire a chosen family because your, your family never rejected you. 
No, my family never rejected me. And actually, I have a beautiful family that embraced a lot of my friends. But I have a chosen family. Yeah. Um, my children are adopted. Yeah. My but I'm talking about like a friend group that you had to gravitate towards yeah. and mold into like your circle, your family, because you didn't have another one. No, I, I would say I have the experience of a chosen family. I have some very dear friends that we've created and we've created ourselves as a family. We yeah. really care of one another. We celebrate each other major milestones. I think that's an element that is present, I would say, for any um, man who does not hold again to the normal heteronormative archetype. But so, yeah, I have a chosen family, but um, not because I was rejected. And actually, in many ways, those people were able to come in and join us for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And my mother's house was open to them. My mother loved them and welcomed them in. <laughs> That's dope. So pivoting back to your profession, can you talk a little bit about facing history and how your identity informed your decision to work for Facing History? So Facing History is a nonprofit organization that, whose mission is to engage um, teachers and students to use the lessons of history to combat bigotry and hatred. Um, and the work of Facing History is to develop a variety of historical, uh, we develop materials, classroom resources, classroom curriculum, and we offer professional development on a variety of historical moments. We call them case studies. Uh, <clears throat> and these case studies are taught in a particular way. Again, our goal is always to develop young people who can stand up to bigotry and hatred, but who can see themselves as young civic actors. And actually, the work of facing history is grounded in the belief that before you start the study of history, but any, any learning really at facing history we believe it begins with identity. So a lot of our training for teachers is training teachers how to do work where you can tap into getting students to think about their identity. Who are they? So who am I? Um, how do others see me? And what do I make of the perception or the assumptions that I think others see me influence my choice and decision-making? Um, we think that that's the root. So, um, my identity really drove me to facing history because A, I wanted to teach in a way that was gonna spark critical thinking and analysis for students. I wanted to teach kids of color and I wanted to equip them with a sense of civic agency, that yeah. this was their country, that they had the right to it and therefore could engage. And facing history does that. Um, and I also thought it was important to activate who are you to, to I think if you're gonna teach kids of color, especially, for liberation or civic engagement, the tool of who are you, of your, of your sense of identity, both individual and collective, is an incredible tool to have in your armor yeah. um, as you prepare for life, especially for kids of color. So those things attracted me about the work of facing a stream. And so am I correct that you went from teaching right to facing history? You know, I had quite a long career in education, you know. Um, I taught for, not, I actually, my first teaching job was in Worcester, Massachusetts. I taught in Worcester. And then Mr. Seals recruited me to come and work at Brookline High. Yeah. Um, and then after Brookline, I went to work at Facing History. 
I then left facing history yeah. and I went on to be a principal of a charter school in the Boston area. Yes, Academy of the Pacific Rim. That's right, at the Academy of Pacific Rim. And that's another and place that we crossed history paths. recruited me back yeah. And I went back in at Facing History. And at the time, I went in as a director of staff development. And then eventually, I moved up. And I'm now the executive program director for professional learning and educator support. Oh, hold on. Can you say that title again? That's, that's, a, that's a title right there. Yeah, I thought I had a title. It's a mouthful. Uh, it's executive program director for professional learning and educator support. Okay. okay. And that means that I oversee three strands of work. So Facing History has um, six offices in the U.S. and then international offices. So I oversee all of the program strategy of these offices and also sort of the metrics and benchmarks that they have to meet annually. I oversee the online learning team. For the last 20 years, Facing History delivers training and content online. So I oversee that team. And then... um, we have an internal team that does staff development. So that's the training of our staff, um, overseeing the skills and competencies of the internal staff. So all those three elements, which are basically the program of Facing History reports to me. Nice. Now, tell me, why is the work of Facing History important in the context of identity or how people view themselves? You touched a little bit on this, but I'm hoping you yeah, can expand on that I mean, that I think... Um, Facing history started in 1976, and it's been, and it it has been, and it continues to be a leader in the education field. Because a 1976, when facing history started, we started with teaching of the Holocaust, which nobody was teaching. And then we not only were we teaching the Holocaust, but we were teaching it in a manner that was inviting kids to think about their own history. That's why it was facing history in ourselves. So we were having conversations about race in America. We were talking about the dynamics of what was happening in the the United States as kids were studying about this moment in Nazi Germany. And we were looking at other genocides. The Holocaust was facing history from very early on. We were looking at the Armenian genocide. This was before anybody wanted to even recognize that there was an Armenian genocide. So we, we shipped the field. And nowadays, you know, beginning, I think, about 20 years ago, in the early 2000s, many Holocaust centers began to change and became Holocaust and genocide centers. And this is after the many years of criticism. Many people are criticized facing history's approach. But I think eventually... And why did they criticize your approach? You know, I think early on, there was this idea that, um, and, and it continues, that the Holocaust was a very particularly unique moment in history. And I mean, every moment in your history is unique if one is an historian uh, and had no parallel. And of course, we know that that's not true. The genocides have parallels, especially the 20th century genocides. So that particular approach. But then the other thing that I think is revolutionary at Facing History is the identity work. The idea that we are saying identity matters and actually want out to make space for it in the classroom. Mm. And not only should you make space for it in the classroom, it is actually a foundation upon which one can build and drive student learning. Right on. You know, so I think the field today talks about culturally responsive teaching. There's a lot of conversation in the field about equity. Yeah. And we at Facing History look at each other and we go, we've been saying this for the last 44 <laughs> years, you guys. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're glad that everybody's there. We're like, welcome to the game. 
And now, um, as we close out this interview, can you talk a little bit about specific school systems where um, the curriculum for facing has been infused? Oh my God, yeah. So we're in a lot of places. The Miami schools, the Miami-Dade uh, public schools. Yeah. We are uh, Boston public schools. We've created curriculums with them and they're teaching it. Yeah. We just got a contract earlier this year working with Pawtucket schools in Rhode Island. Okay. We're working with um, Chicago public schools. We're in Chicago and CPS. There's uh, kids in 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th grades have a facing history a curriculum. We work with the Memphis public schools in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, we are working with schools in uh, LA Unified. We're working with um, Antioch schools in the Bay Area um, and a variety of other places. So either they have a program or teachers are coming to our PD and then they are integrating in terms of what else they're, they're teaching. Bravo. All right, I'm actually going to close you out on this question. Surprise! All right, here goes. Um, So I'm thinking about your identity as a whole and how it has shifted over the years. Now that you're entering uh, your 50s, the, the second half of your life, what do you see evolving or coming to the forefront? You're a father. Um, maybe in 10 years, you'll be a grandfather. I'm just talking about some of the work you do and how you experience life and whatever. Like, yeah. Are you seeing or feeling anything shift internally with regard to who you are that you see coming to the forefront in the next few Yeah, years? I mean, I think um, in, we talked a lot about my sort of my identity as a gay man, which I, again, even that identity has shifted. Yeah. You know, um, and as I've said, I have moved on. I and I use new other terms for defining that. So I suspect that will continue to change. Um, Are you comfortable expanding on that thought? I'm not clear on what it is that you're stating. There. You know, I think the idea that sexuality is fluid. I don't. I don't necessarily think it is. It, it it is possible that I could be in a relationship with a woman. That's quite possible. I'm not writing that off. I don't envision myself, at least at the moment, being in a heteronormative uh, relationship, but I do know that what it means to be a gay man or identifying as a gay man does not have the same meaning today that it had for me 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So that I'm trying evolved. to close out this interview and you I drop know. it. Oh. Well, you asked me, more. right? <laughs> so you asked me, so I don't know. So I don't know. And then... Um, but what did it I mean think- to you 20 years ago that it doesn't right now? I think it probably consumed me more 20 years ago than it does right now. Okay, okay. Um, and I think right now I am probably at a place, maybe growth, comfort, where it's, it doesn't feel as much of a strong defining element. You know, so I think in the future, I don't know. I would love to, um, to be able to retire. I think for Black men to, to be in America, to be in a place where one can retire, that's an incredible achievement. Yeah. I'd love to be able to work overseas mm. um, and relive probably the experience of being in the Congo like my parents did, but if you do it as an adult. Yeah. And I would love to, as you said, being a grandparent and seeing my young black men grow and be themselves and yeah. being able to watch that. Powerful. And if you were to ask me the same question, I would say, in 10 to 15 years, I could see myself becoming an expatriate. Oh. I could see that happening. I don't have anything planned. 
I don't know where it would be, but I'm troubled by where we are as a country. Um, I huh. think fundamentally we have some work to do as, as people. And I don't know that I have faith that people are willing to do the work or that somehow we can get to a place where I feel like I'm among a majority of decent people who care about their neighbor. Um, I think, yes, we've, we, we see dark moments and we've, I think in the U.S. have gone through some dark moments and the, the globe, the globe. I mean, there are a lot of bad things happening around the world. Um, but at the end of the day, these two shall come and pass and never, never, never bet on the ingenuity, the love, um, the creativity of human beings. Let's hope. I need to become more of an optimist. Dimitri, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me for this episode. It was very enlightening. Um, I learned a lot about you. Good luck with the work you're doing at, at facing with that majestic title you have. I have to admit, Dimitri threw me for a loop in this episode. I expected him to offer that his sexuality was very salient for him, but it isn't, even though it once was. Our experiences are unique and identity shifts. All of this is to say it's important to observe and listen rather than assume, and be careful about what you ask people, especially when you don't have an established relationship. Move at the speed of trust, not your desire to learn. Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting.